passage today comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through to 15. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God and Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things to you so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends your greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. If you've been um, paying attention over the last little while, as we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you would have seen the Lord Jesus present a really radical uh, vision of life in the kingdom, one that he compared to light in darkness, the salt of the earth, the salt of the world was one of the uh, phrases that he uh, set before us as, a, as an image. He talked about turning the other cheek, about loving those uh, who hate us. He set before us a radically different life. And if you know anything about the Christian faith, you'll know that we are being called by Jesus as his followers, as his disciples, to swim against the flow. And it's getting harder, isn't it? You may have noticed recently, as the whole sort of same-sex marriage stuff has hotted up, that the vitriol that has been directed against biblical Christianity has increased. It's getting harder. And there's a temptation for us as Christians, for us as churches, to kind of bunker down. Yes? And just hang out with people who are like us, who believe what we believe, who live the way that we live. But that's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not the image of the Christian life. The Bible presents our lives as ones that are engaged in the communities in which we live. You would have heard that as Anne read to us uh, from Titus chapter 3. Words about 
how to deal with those in authority, how to live with those around us. But that can sometimes be really, really messy. I want to tell you a story about a religious studies teacher. Uh, Unlike, unfortunately, so many religious studies teachers, this man actually believed what he taught. This is a man, among others, whom the Lord used to bring me to faith in Christ. This man came across with a warmth and a conviction that impressed me as a 12-year-old way back in ancient history. The last few years ago, I met another man, a man who was standing up heading a Christian mission to the LGBTIQ plus community uh, in Sydney and across Australia. This man shared his testimony about how he, as a homeless, drug-addicted male prostitute, had been taken in by a Church of Christ pastor, by a Christian man who shared not only his life and his home, but his family with a person who sounded complicated, to say the least. And then he told us the name of this man, and it was my religious studies teacher. A man whose life had been transformed whom God used his word and his life to transform this other man, who God was using to transform others, and in the process, God used to transform me. That's the vision that God puts before us, that we live different lives to his glory, that we might be a blessing. Where do you get the power for that? Because it sounds tough, doesn't it? Where do you get the strength for that? Where do you get the capacity to live different lives? Well, Titus 3 gives us the answer, among other parts of Scripture as well, but Titus 3 really hones in deep. We're going to look at it under five headings. Here they are. The wonder of salvation. The power of grace. There she is over there. The life of thanks. The danger of division. And an encouragement to keep the faith. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul writing to his offsider in Crete, who is left behind to get the church established, the Apostle Paul in this last little section of his letter to Titus tells him to major on the majors, to speak to people about the wonder of salvation, and Paul lays it out for us in verses 3 through to verse 7. He starts with our predicament. He says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's a pretty bleak kind of picture, isn't it? <laughs> You kind of sit there and go, come on, Paul, there's so many positive things you talk about. Like, why do you have to bring this up? Well, let me give you an illustration that hopefully goes some way to explain that. Rescue boat. Okay. You see the rescue boat while you're snorkeling on a nice, calm, sunny day down at Norlunga. You're inside the reef. There's no swell. It's beautiful. You look at the rescue boat and you go, 
Isn't it cool? Rescue boat. It's a nice red colour. There's some people that look like they're having fun. Your experience of the rescue boat is one thing. Your ship has just sunk in the Southern Ocean. It's three degrees. You have 20 minutes in the water before you freeze to death. Your experience of the rescue boat is somewhat different. Yes? We can forget just how beautifully, how wonderfully God answers our need if we move past our need too quickly. Paul hammers home. He paints a very bleak picture. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malice and envy, hatred. You might look at it and go, come on, that's a bit hard. You know, these Cretans, they sound like bad people. But Paul doesn't talk about you. He says we. Paul, the moral Jewish leader, includes himself in the we. And if he's speaking to us, he would include us in that we. He would include our communities in this we. He's painting broad brushstrokes, let me say. He's not saying everyone is a psychopathic axe murderer. But what he is saying is that sin transforms communities and lives of individuals in the negative. It takes us away from God and his purposes. It takes us into a dark place individually and corporately. If you don't think that's true, just pick up the newspaper, follow the the ABC News, listen to what's going on in our political world. Hear the malice and the envy and the hatred that our leaders project against each other. This is a capture, this is an image, a snapshot of our community to display our desperate predicament. But against that, God presents an incredible answer. And he gives it to us. Paul lays it out here beautifully. I'm going to put on my teacher hat at the moment. Okay. God in all his actions is one. We believe in one God, Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But God always works trinitarianly in all his actions. And here we see in salvation the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together to work salvation. Salvation is not just a matter of Jesus on the cross, dying and rising. Salvation is Father, Son, and Spirit. Let me show you. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, there's the Father's purpose, the Father's love and kindness in sending the Son He saves us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So God meets our need. God answers our sin. He answers the blackness of our situation with the brilliance of the light and the wonder of his kindness and love, his grace and his mercy. God meets our need. He does it, verse 7, he justifies us by his grace. He declares us to be right in relationship with him. When Paul speaks about the love and kindness of God appearing, he's talking about ultimately the act of salvation at the cross, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's capturing. Christ sent into the world by the Father's expressed purpose. 
fine, that happened 2,000 years ago. What about us? Well, then he moves to the next person of the Trinity. The Father sent the Son, the Son died and rose again, and in verse, uh, verse 5, he saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. What the Father intended, what the Son achieved, the Spirit applies. The washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Spirit takes the victory of Christ, takes the gospel message, takes the events that were achieved back then on that hill outside Jerusalem and applies it in our lives. Not just teaches us facts, but this is where transformation happens. Titus is encouraged that Paul is here speaking about the salvation that comes through this washing, this cleansing, and this renewal. The washing of rebirth, the renewal by the Holy Spirit. They are two different things. Let me give you an image that might help you understand what he's talking about here. Washing of rebirth is talking about conversion, coming in, kind of like, as I've done recently, buying the house. Okay? This is, this washing of rebirth is buying the house. This is what John uh, records for us that Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. This is this event. The house that Jesus bought through his death and resurrection is a bit of a shack. He gives us the, the specs on the house in verse 3. Deceived, foolish, disobedient, envy, malice, hatred. Jesus buys the house, the washing of rebirth, and then the renewal that comes through the work of the Spirit in our lives. This is the renome. This is what goes on from salvation till Christ's return as we are transformed into the image of Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit take us from sin and death into life and then see us transformed. And there's this future trajectory to our salvation that's there in verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We are not just forgiven, but we are given status as joint heirs with Christ, inheriting every spiritual blessing in him. Now, does that excite you? A few nods. Good Anglican congregation, fair dinkum. Does that excite you? Yes, yes thank you, there's some Baptists. Yeah. That we have. We have our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, saving us beautifully. And this is the key, not just to getting in, but to living the life of the kingdom, to being the light of the world, to being the salt of the earth, to turning the other cheek, to blessing when they curse. This is the key. This is where the power comes. It's there in verse 8. This is Paul's way of underlining things. He writes, this is a trustworthy saying. If he had a word processor, he'd put it in bold, he'd underline it, and he'd probably jack it up from 11 point to 14 point or 18 point. He'd really draw your attention. So when you come across in scripture, this is a trustworthy saying. Paul's like, pay attention. 
He's just told us the trustworthy saying that Christ saved us, that the Father sent the Son, that the Son's work is applied by the Spirit in our lives and we will be with him in eternity. This is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things. Titus, church leader, church planner, keep banging on about the gospel. I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. The life of doing what is good, the life of being salt and light, flows out of the gospel. Titus's job isn't to teach them just how to live. That would be laying law down. Just to say, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. To get people to live the life, the life that flows from the gospel... You don't just teach them the life, you go back again and again and again to the gospel. This is the key. It's when grace transforms our lives and our hearts. Many of you might know the story of, um, of Jacob going to get a, get a wife. Okay, do you know the story, Genesis? Okay, Jacob goes off and he works for, uh, I think it's actually his uncle. Things were a little bit different in those days. Uh, and he's fallen in love with Rachel. Beautiful Rachel, there she is. He's desperately in love. And Laban, his future father-in-law, says, fine, seven years, buddy. You have to work for me for seven years to get her. And you know what Genesis says? Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Does that warm the heart? Think about it. For those of us who've loved someone like that, you're buying them a Christmas present and you're forking out more money than you can afford, but you don't care, do you? You don't care because this is driven, motivated, inspired, empowered by love. If you do, you've got problems, come and talk to me. But anyway, love changes everything. And here, as the gospel teaches us, as the spirit takes the work of Christ and applies it in our hearts, as our hearts see the wonder of grace... Our seven years labor, our obedience to the laws, the commands of God, they seem like just a little thing because of our love for him. Do you see that? That is what Paul says. Titus, keep banging on about the gospel. The life of thanks flows from it. It flows not from a list of commands, but it flows from a transformed heart. The Lord Jesus gave us this. Luke 6, he says, A good man brings up good things out of the good stored in his heart. Evil man brings up evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. What's the defining factor? The heart's the defining factor, yes. What the heart, where the heart is overflows and produces all sorts of different behaviours. So we need something that will change the heart. You can have things that look real. You can have a form of Christianity. 
But if the heart is not changed, it's a fake. It's a counterfeit. It looks real, but it's not. The Old Testament recognized this. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of a time when God would do something new. Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. See how Titus 3 mirrors this language, this washing and baptism and rebirth. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See how Ezekiel anticipates the gospel. Ezekiel anticipates the work of the spirit in the life of the believer. New heart, heart of flesh, put my spirit in you, move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A change of heart leads to a change of action. A change of heart leads to a change of action. So Paul calls Titus to teach the people, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. It's not always easy, is it? You're in a hurry. That sign says 50. It's just a suggestion, really, isn't it? It's just a it's kind of the vibe, you know, it's like the pirate's code. It's no. You tax. You're sitting there. How close to the line do you go? Will they truly audit me? No, come on, I'm just a small fish. They'll go after the big guys. No. Be subject willingly. Subject yourself to the rulers and authority. Be obedient. Obedience is easy, isn't it? Just ask any three-year-old. Be ready to do whatever is good. The image here is not just to be good in a passive kind of way, but to be on the front foot looking for the opportunities, looking how can I be a blessing? How can I help my workmates? How can I serve my family? How can I help that random person I sat next to on the bus? How can I be a blessing to that kid at school that no one talks to? Being on the front foot to do what is good. Slander no one. Be peaceable and considered always to be gentle. Gentle towards everyone. He sums it up in verse 14. He says, our people must learn to devote themselves to do what is good. Would people say that of us? That's a church of people devoted to doing what is good. Would they say that of you? Would they see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven? Devote yourself to do what is good in order to provide for urgent needs, to respond to people around you in need and not to live literally unfruitful lives. Because it is the gospel by the spirit's work that bears fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, faith, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. But if we are going to live radically different lives, if we are going to live lives that are empowered by the gospel, we must stay connected. I love um, 
proteas. They're my flower of choice. Uh, if uh, the person who moves into our house um, after we've gone doesn't like proteas, they're going to be cutting down an awful lot of plants. Uh, I like them because you can cut the flowers and they last forever. So it's a cheap way of me giving Karen flowers and they last for a long time. Roses, they're dead within a week. You know, proteas, you can sometimes get a month out of them. They're really cool. But the moment you actually cut them off from their roots, no matter how long they last, they're dead there. They're just waiting to turn brown and wither. If we are going to bear good fruit, if we are going to live radically different lives, if we are going to give God honour through the testimony that our words and lives give to him, we will only do it if we remain connected to the root that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. If we move beyond it, we are in peril. And so that is why Paul, here at the end, warns, Timothy, uh, warns Titus again. He says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and useless. The church there was getting tied up in stupid little debates. Stupid little debates that weren't just stupid little debates. They were actually really significant debates. Because people were coming in and saying, yes, Jesus, but you've got to do all this other stuff. They were adding to the gospel. Sometimes you find false teachers come in and they take away from the gospel. They want to drop things like the judgment of God or the offense of sin. But you have other forms of teaching, and I think here reflected in the genealogies. Who gets... No one's ever had a fight with me about a genealogy. Has anyone ever thought... You know, the front of Matthew's gospel, all the, all the names... Why are they, well, they're getting hung up on something that's not central. People have had fights with me about views on creation, where they want to say this particular view or views on Jesus' return, this particular view, views on the Holy Spirit, views on whatever. They take something that is important but secondary and they make it primary. They make it the main thing. And Paul warns Titus, Paul warns Titus not to let that happen because you will end up being unprofitable and useless. You will end up cutting your connection as you lose the gospel. 2 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy about people who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They look Christian, but they don't have a connection, a real living connection by faith to God through the gospel. The spirit is not at work in their lives. It's kind of like uh, early 2000s, this movie came out. Has anyone seen Stepford Wives? You know, it's a funny little movie. This is, uh, this is the remake. There's actually an original where uh, I think the guys actually do away with their wives and they have robots instead. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? I don't understand the appeal personally. Uh, someone said, uh, where would you not spot an entire town full of robots? Uh, the answer was Connecticut. I don't understand that because I'm not American. But um, maybe someone who is can tell us why. But you have people who look like people. You have wives that look like wives, but they're not, they're not real. 
You can have Christians that look like Christians and you can have churches that look like churches. But if the heart and soul is not there, if the gospel and the spirit and the love of God working itself out, if that is not there, you've got a Stepford church or a Stepford Christian. And Paul says, avoid like the plague. He warns Titus, warn them once and then a second time and after that, have nothing to do with them. Seems a bit harsh. It's just how serious this is. You fight to the death on the gospel. You fight to the death to keep the gospel central. The other things, as important they are, they cannot be allowed to divide. So how is it that we can disagree well? Because we are a bunch of sinners. And we will have disagreements. We have different ideas about how different things should happen. We have different ideas on interpretations of scripture. How do we do this well? The only way that we can do this well is if we do it in a way that is actually rooted and empowered by the gospel. If we do it the way the world does it, how does the world do division? They get together, they find people who support them, and if there's more of them, well, they win. They do factions, they gossip. Think about workplaces that you've worked in when you've seen this go horribly, horribly wrong. How do we do division in a way that is God-honoring, that is gospel-centered, that actually promotes unity, that brings us together rather than pulling us apart. Ephesians 4 verse 3, Paul encourages us. He stresses to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We have to recognize what it cost God to bring us together. And we must work diligently, passionately, to keep that unity. But that unity is only found in the gospel. The people we don't keep unity with are people who deny the gospel. But if we share the gospel, we work to bless. So when we have disagreements, we raise them in love. We go to the people and we talk them out, not to win the argument, but to bless the person and to build them up and to be built up by them in turn. You go in recognizing that you don't have all the answers, you don't have it all together, because you, like they, are a sinner saved by grace. You do it in a way that is careful. You do it in a way that honors the other with whom you are having the disagreement. You do it in a way that preserves that unity at all costs. At all costs. The unity of the gospel, the unity that Christ died to give us, should not be sacrificed carelessly. So what do we do now? We keep the faith. It's been said before, it's not my phrase, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Trinity Hills, I want to sit down on the beach watching the sunset, 
you know, Seacliff, just thinking of you guys and hearing great stories about a great church that is going on, that is a gospel-centered church that is having a powerful impact on its community. I want to hear about how God is using individuals within their workplace, within their families, within their street communities. I want to hear those stories. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. You've got to be like the tree that is going ever deeper. You don't get up and move on, find something that's next. You go deeper and deeper and deeper into grace. You recognize that it's a work of God in your life. So you go to him in prayer and you beg him to show you more of his love, to teach you more of his grace, to give you the strength that you need to serve him faithfully. You ask the Spirit to illuminate the Word so that you might know God better. You stay in His love. You saturate your personal life with the Gospel. I've used this phrase many times. You learn to preach the Gospel to yourself. As you face trials, as you face challenges to your faith, as you face that temptation to withdraw or to lose the unity How does the gospel speak to that? You ask yourself that question. You ask others that question. You share counsel together. You saturate yourself in the gospel. You saturate your church in the gospel. The songs that you sing, the prayers that you pray, the preachers that you listen to, the testimonies that you bear, let them be gospel testimonies that speak of how grace works out. God has called us to live radically different lives. He has made us his own. He has brought us out of slavery, foolishness, deception. He's brought us to himself. He has given us a new life and his spirit lives in us. Go, serve him, but never lose touch with his love for you in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, help us to see your grace. Help us to see your love and kindness. Help us to gaze upon the wonder of your mercy to us in Christ. Jesus, we do thank you that you went to the cross that you died and rose again so that through faith in you we might have life. And we praise you, Spirit, that you take the love of the Father and the obedience of the Son and you work it out in our lives, not just to see us washed clean, saved, but to transform us into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. We pray that this would be a process, as you have promised, that would continue, that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would do this so that we might see you at work, transforming us and transforming others, that we might give glory to you as others do also. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.